Hello, Sheree Hansen here. Uh, the first thing I want to say is how much gratitude I think we all hold for Shauna being in our lives, holding space with her kindness, her big heart, her technological ability, and her encouragement for us to grow and to come together. So it is with very, very full heart that I thank Shauna. The next thing I want to say is um, I want to introduce myself a little bit. I am a life coach, a psychic channel, a writer, and an artist. Um, I knew that I had a connection to the psychic world when I was very young. I would receive messages when I was three or four years old that were always accurate. Uh, and the, the way that I have uh, received them has changed over the years. It has become much more intense, much more crystal clear. I will hear a voice or I will see an image. Um, and when I reach out to the person that the message is about, they will say something to me like, that is so strange that you just got a hold of me. My son's best friend just killed himself. I was looking for comfort. So what I've come to understand is that the channel, the gift, the psychic ability is something that I've signed a contract with. <laughs> I have a contract with the spirit that shows me things. And the contract is that if it tells me to speak, if it tells me to reach out, if it gives me a message for somebody, I can't let my ego stand in the way. My uh, concern about, oh my God, what if I'm wrong or right or anything else. If I want to keep it alive and if I want to be of service to people, I have to fulfill my part of the contract. So just explaining that a little bit. Um, my life story is interesting. This is me. This is the age I was when my father returned from uh, World War II. He was in the tank corps. He had gone through shell shock. Uh, he was mentally unstable. And at that age is when the physical, emotional, and sexual abuse began in my life. I've come to see it as a great gift because it taught me so much about wounding, about pain, about neurosis, about the shadow self, about um, loss of soul, about uh, being afraid in the world. And the reason I was taught these things was so that I could experiment on myself. It's like the scientist, you know, in, in the stone cave under the house that's, that's shooting his own veins up to find out how he can cure uh, what has ailed humankind. So I've been my own guinea pig. Um, the, the force of the damage that I could have carried with me throughout my life was very severe. I had my nose, my cheekbones, the bones in my hands, my collarbones, uh, 
places and my legs have been shattered. And this is all uh, as a toddler. So what I've come to see is that it's for me, the lesson about forgiveness, about wholeness, about reclaiming myself. And why? Because I was put here to help people, to lead them through um, the things that they've gone through and know how to assure them that there is a bright, calm, peaceful place on the other side. Um, I had a retreat with uh, Gabor Mate. Um, it was a seven-day retreat in Victoria at Sleeping Dog Lodge. And at that time, he um, encouraged me to write this book called Laying It on the Line, which was to speak my truth. He was very, very clear that it was very important for me to be authentic, to not hide, uh, to not be in a place where I was increasing my own suffering. And so he asked me to write this book. The first poem in it that is relevant to what we're talking about today is called Totem Child. This was published at the University of Toronto Women's Studies magazine. Totem Child. Father flat beneath a slab in California, I am told. Only rumors. It is never spoken. I wear him in my body. Never say it, nameless shaman. Bruised decoratively hidden in my crib, my bed from eyes from school, waiting for the fading. The bone deep, his jewelry. A neck ring restricts my turning vision. The vertebrae tattooed with cracks. The fury of his hands pulled my sections one from another, separating self from self. I left myself for him. The strength of his hand strangled me from form, jerking my body backwards, incapable of doing any more than going limp, watching my own trailing helpless legs and arms along the childhood hallway. As if an afterthought, my collarbone, out of line, unattended under four-year clothing, a healed shard sticks up defiantly. My restructured nose, asymmetrically sculpted to his fist, made me in the image of his own abuse. His father's touch along his young boy's body I was totem molded to his vehemence, rigid in an unsafe crib, a baby listening for my creator's steps, coming to convert me to his uses, his passing presence marked in x-rays as puzzled doctors hold me up to light. And I realize that is quite intense, but part of uh, the thing I am asked to do is to be very honest about how, how wonderfully rich my healing journey has been. 
So I kind of laughingly say, well, I signed up for every kind of abuse and possible stupid mistake a person can make in their lives to demonstrate to people <laughs> that there's a way out of anything. <laughs> so that's what I keep looking at. This book, Laying It on the Line, is uh, for sale from me if you wish to uh, purchase it. Gabber called it uh, brilliant and um, a gifted use of words. So this is a poem that means a lot to me. This is about speaking. And I want to make sure that everybody understands there's a difference between martyring yourself, between standing up and asking that other people re-victimize you, that other people do drama with you, and simply speaking your truth. And that comes with how it feels in your body. Holding in my throat the words, I wished to speak, but feared the sound that cannot be gathered back. Grabbed, fisted, and jammed into the crevice, pocket hidden in lent darkness among the dried up mints. I could not taste for swallowing my words. All down the throat, the singing ache, a strip sore, notes of pain, a path, the words scraping, clawing at the neck, Inside, I hold them back, all that blast of truth to feed the parasite of fear. It catches my throat. The heart thumps, speeds, unbearable moments open between the lies. Silence opens between the voices at once, the fragile at once the perfection of light and shape and life shatters me with simple beauty. When I hear words, the shiver silvers my body. Bright luminescent visions flow from my pen. The voice excites me from the gray-throated life, unpacked with all my edges seen. There is no child, there is no hold. Open-handed, the child steps, trusting the treacherous ground, unlit spaces. There is no hold. Open-throated before the truth. Welcome in, discoveries, dancing melodies, blinding spin, confusion maps let go and that is uh, a poem that talks about the process that takes you through the process of clearing the past drama and the past damage at first we're afraid to speak we're afraid that people will think something of us. We hold the shame within ourselves and grow it. I often think of uh, how if there's no light on it, it just ends up like black mold becoming more and more pervasive. And then after we find the voice and after we speak and after we look 
at what has happened to us, what happens is we return to a state of innocence. We return to a place where we're in a world that we don't know. And it is when we let go and when we go back to our childhood innocence that we start to really see the beauty of life without the darkness, without the scarring, without the past story. And this is when delight comes in. <laughs> Sorry, I know it's a terrible pun. I have been writing a blog uh, since 2008 because in uh, 2008, I started stepping into my voice. I started sharing with people the work that goes into listening to my thoughts, paying attention to my thoughts, tracing my thoughts back to a past story, and uh, working with the concept of getting into a clear space, getting into a place where I didn't let my past story run me. And this is a thing I wish everybody would take away. 97 to 99% of everything you think every single hour of your life comes from your story under the age of six or seven before you could use language well to clear trauma. So if we give credence to all of these thoughts that come from a anxious child, you can understand how that keeps us locked into a mental state of being an anxious child. And we can see a lot of it right now. <laughs> Whatever, it's like a buffet. <laughs> what kind of anxious, angry, adolescent, toddler thinking do you want to participate in? It's all out there in the world. And uh, that's because people don't understand that the thoughts that are presenting to them are from their own childhood. And mindfulness allows you to see the thoughts and let it go. So what has happened with COVID? One of my clients, <laughs> I was just laughed for days, said, isn't this wonderful? We have a COVID opportunity. She said, it's like somebody came into the madhouse, into, this world of addiction, of competition, of scarcity, of rushing, of trying to buy status or show people that you deserve to live or kneel down before me, I'm not broken. And she said, what happened is everybody was put into isolation. <laughs> so you're locked up in your room, you're locked up in the silence. And I found it amazing that she could see this. I can't buy something to make myself feel better. I can't compete with other people to make myself feel better. I can't dress up in expensive clothing to signal status. All of the things that I normally would do that actually slow down my growth have been taken away. And it is amazing to see how people rise to this challenge. What do you do when somebody takes away your scarcity? I want you to think about this. 
We were all running in a scarcity world. There wasn't enough time. There's not enough energy. Uh, you don't have enough money. You're not running around enough. Now you take that all away. And we have no scarcity left because you can't run after anything. <laughs> it makes it very difficult. So what are we left with? We're left with two things. We're left with silence and we're left with our thoughts. So here we are and there is nothing in between us and what we're thinking. And it's an absolutely brilliant time to grow from a frightened child into a mature adult by just watching your thoughts. And I was so happy when my client said that. I thought it was just beautiful. Um, <clears throat> I've been reading William James, uh, who wrote in the late 1800s. He was a pragmatist philosopher. And his book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, is absolutely perfect for this time in our history. <clears throat> he states, insane conditions have this advantage, that they isolate special factors of the mental life and enable us to inspect them, unmasked by their usual surroundings. So all of the factors of your mental life that have been masked, somebody else is responsible for what you're feeling or you're thinking. Uh, you know, you're in a house with your, by yourself or with your family, and it's very, very difficult to find the source of your angst in the outside world because you can't get to the outside world. So now we look at it, our minds unmasked. This is a time we are called upon to clear our vision. To, we have our distractions removed and what we're left with is we're left with our projections of what reality is. Unveiling our triggers is very strong right now. Uh, people are in a position where a lot of childhood trauma, damage, uh, fear, that kind of thing is coming up because there's nothing in its way. It's just the silence you in this restricted environment and your thoughts. There is a, a very strong erasing of peer pressure because peer pressure is strongest the closer we are to one another. When you're in a tribe or a crowd and there's a new way of doing your fingernails and you're seeing it all around you, you're now being marked or imprinted by that. Uh, it's very difficult to imprint people in the same way when we don't have proximity to one another. So this causes um, a much clearer view of the question, what am I choosing? Why am I choosing it? Um, 
I have a couple of blogs that I put up recently that uh, really discuss some of the lessons that I am experiencing and I see that others around me are experiencing. Um, this one is called Looking at the Self. Keeping in mind that the self is a construct. What we think of as our self is something that we create in our conditioning, in our family story. Uh, and for many, many people, the self does not even include the body. The body is just like a tail, you know, one of those dinosaurs with a long draggy tail. It's back there, but I don't know what it's doing. So this one is called looking at the self. First, I have to say, because I am forthright, if nothing else, that when we no longer hide, we are now in a position to heal. A door opens. We no longer try so hard to not feel, to not hurt, to not show our human weaknesses. We speak, we take action, or redirect our thoughts from a deep place of knowing who we are or, or who we are attempting to become. Trusting others is the way that we build our confidence in ourselves. When others are allowed to see us as who we are and meet us in that open space between us. We see that we have a shared vulnerability and humanity. Um, and Brene Brown talks a lot about how you become more human when you are more vulnerable. The struggles are not unique. No one of us struggles more than any other one of us with this issue of being okay. The struggles are not signs of failure. The struggles are signs of growth. Every soul born in a body has to face the same challenges. And the Buddhists talk about this a lot. They talk about how the moment the spirit comes into a body, we are all in a place where we are faced with challenges, where we are faced with the knowledge that we will die, and we all have the same exact path of suffering. Nobody's special. It helps us to remove ourselves from the adolescent place of posturing and the fearful wearing of a mask into a greater connection with our very own personal power. The feeling that, that we will die if others don't accept us is normal. <laughs> we all have it. We're all walking around like teenagers, like, oh my God, do they like me? Do they really like me? Do I fit in? <laughs> I believe it comes from our ancestral memory. Being shunned in the past meant no one would allow you in. Being alone in the forest without food, shelter, and clothing meant you were condemned. There were predators in that unprotected place. The teen years are when these feelings are the most intense. And just a footnote. And people who still are running with an adolescent mind also experience it very strongly. Throughout my life, the people I trusted the least were people who are wearing a mask. 
it is probably why I failed to trust myself for so many years. So how does an individual become real? <clears throat> Somewhere in the mess of habits and emotions <clears throat> that we call the self is the sweet spot. It isn't about re-victimizing ourselves, although we have been trained to do that brilliantly. Everybody in our society will applaud, lean forward, and hug you if you're victim enough. It's like, go baby, give me some more victim. It isn't about self-loathing that leads us to punish ourselves because we are not good enough. It isn't about killing off the core soul self to prevent others from rejecting us. It's the courage to feel exactly who you are and to trust that. That is why I grew to be 178 pounds when I was alone in a tiny apartment one summer while I was attending university because I feared and was at war with my body. I put on weight. Because I put on weight, I only felt in control when I was eating. I had no distraction from the searing imprint of abandonment in my childhood. The only distraction I had was punishing myself, but unconsciously deforming my physical presentation, I could show the world that I was in control. And finally, <laughs> Isn't it by resigning to pain, to dysfunction, to the operating system of the past habits that a person can end the struggle between the static and the dynamic self? And this is an interesting word that is very important when I'm dealing with clients. It's called resigning to it. And what that means is you're no longer fighting it. I feel this way because I'm human. I feel this way because any human being who went through what I went through would feel this way. And then you let go. You don't grab on. Finally, we are merely mortal. We can only take one single thing at a time and focus on it. And I love to see how people go after uh, growth and self-development. They put 15 things down that they're going to do. You know, it's like saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become six foot tall with black hair and I'm going to be really good at putting together kits from Ikea. I'm sorry, what you've just created is a failure plan for yourself. We are organic entities. We can only take so much of change and habit installation and hardwiring new ways of moving in the world. It is up to each of us to figure out what keystone habit our entire construction of reality is held in place by. So this is one of the things that most really good counselors, and uh, I work with this with the people I coach, you can change 10,000 habits in your life over six lifetimes <laughs> but if you can find the keystone habit which is that stone in the middle of the ark that holds up everything else 
you'll find it's much easier to step into the new manifestation of your spirit and your body. So think about that. What is my keystone habit that if I changed, everything else would fall into place? When the specialist told me, Just trying to find my place here, five. Okay, now we're, now we're getting into spicy language. So you can plug your ears if it's too offensive. When the specialist told me I would be in a wheelchair because I had rheumatoid arthritis, I cried the entire uh, hour long car ride back to my house. And then I got angry. I got angry at myself for not paying attention. I got angry at the medical system for not understanding more about how mental pain manifests in physical pain. And I sat and began to research for eight hours without taking a break. Every single primary source medical journal study, um, you know, these, these were PDF downloadable, uh, scientific data collection studies that I went to. Three doctors said to me that I would never live without pain. The medication I was taking was shortening my life. My attitude in that moment was, fuck you. I did research. I ordered DHEA online myself. I followed the Norwegian study um, procedure and fasted for 12 days with nothing but water. I went to a hormone doctor and got my hormones balanced. I became serious about my meditation practice and watching my mind became the most important thing in my life. I began to honor the entirety of myself, my childishness, my adolescence, my jealousy, my anger, my fear, all of it was me. <laughs> I paid attention to my masked rage, my limitations, my childishness, my yearnings, my gifts. I went on a path of soul retrieval whereby I accepted all of my complexities. I was only human. Traditionally, the system gives up on us. And so we give up on us. Oh, are you 50 or 60 or 70? Of course you're hurting. Of course you can't remember where you are. Growing increasingly weaker is what you can hope for. And the best you can hope for is to slow down your own disintegration. It's simply not true. And my reaction has been to everyone who mirrors that back to me. Fuck you. I started reading about DNA, about telomeres, about stem cells. I began to look at TED Talks and YouTube videos. And I watched masses of YouTubes about senior bodybuilders. 
I used to believe that tuberculosis, this is our world, we used to believe that tuberculosis could not be cured, that polio would inevitably deform you, that longevity was 50. Congratulations, baby, you're 50. Now you die. <laughs> then it was 60, then 70. One thing we know is everything changes in perception. I am a dynamic set of habits and thoughts. Society is a construct of ideas. Science no longer is a thick, leather-bound Bible of facts. It is moving and changing. Finally, who we are is simply a field of energy, a collection of beliefs, a structure of habits. The place of magic is to be open and curious. Who am I? <laughs> Who am I now? And to get to this place of possibility, we first must not be encased in the sarcophagus of identity, the tomb of what we can only be. In addition, people around us create who we are. 35 years of longitudinal studies prove that if others in our social amoeba, which is all the people that are close to us, our friends, our family, and we operate in the same energy field. Have you ever seen those pictures of tree roots and how the trees are all entangled with one another? We are like that in our social energy field. If others in our social amoeba are eating poorly, we are more likely to eat poorly. If they aren't proactive and are living in a survivor's mode and celebrating the depths of their victimhood, so will we be in a state of constant struggle. We fall for old habits when the new habits are not yet hardwired. We fit in with the social reflections around us. Take, for instance, the habitual problem of losing my keys. I see everything as a metaphor for everything else. That's the way my mind works. <clears throat> I spent 30 years not knowing where I last put my keys down. And then one day I stood in the doorway furious with myself. It was only then I set an intention. I got a key rack and I taught myself to put my keys away. Everything is that simple. <laughs> you want to change it? Change it. It may take six weeks of repetition to hardwire it, but you can do it. The study of neurological pathways shows that 66 days of repeating a behavior until it is hardwired is a step to a new life. So somewhere between resignation, victimhood, inward-directed anger is the ability to calmly and carefully and delicately and kindly rebuild ourselves.
But in order to do that, we have to research the most effective manner to go about it. We don't decide to rebuild our bathroom without watching YouTube videos or hiring a plumber. It is not sledgehammer and crowbar work to redesign yourself. <laughs> Self means finessing. When we give ourselves as we are too much credit and ourselves as we are becoming too little credit, we deny ourselves the opportunity to live a more peaceful, a healthier, a more satisfying life. And it all starts with desire. Standing in the doorway, tired of losing my keys. Sign up for change. Find articles, study them, figure out who you want to be, and do everything you can to lovingly guide yourself there. The self is a dynamic construct, and you can do it. I want to talk a little bit about um, <clears throat> where I was when I was in my 30s and 40s and where I am now. Three months, I'll be 76. I have never been healthier. I have never been stronger. I have never slept better. And I have gone through horrendous experiences like being on the street in Paris where 91 people died in 15 minutes. I was there, I experienced it. And what I have come away with is an understanding that we can fall in love with ourselves, we can bond with ourselves, we can stay very, very calm if we set about it in an intelligent manner. When I went in six years ago for hormone testing, bone mass density, uh, organ function, blood um, and uh, urine and saliva. What happened was uh, the doctor indicated that I was reading at about 55 years of age. Last summer, I had the bone mass density of a 28-year-old and all my tests showed somebody who was in their early 30s. How did this happen? Well, this happened because the body is meant to repair itself. Cells are meant to repair themselves. We have to get in a place where we're not freaking ourselves out all the time and shooting various uh, chemicals and uh, cortisone and all the rest of it into our body. And I did not expect the result. The doctor did not expect the result. He called me and he said, I want to know what you're doing. I, I have been working for 35 years as a doctor. I've never seen this before. And I said, well, I'm doing everything. <laughs> I was like, how can I love my body? How can I take care of my body? How can I make good decisions? How can I be in a place of peace and calm? And so I pursued that. Um, I also was watching a um, 
I was watching a uh, astrologer the other day, and it was very interesting to me the reaction I had. I got this big jolt of energy because I realized that I had spent so many years calming myself down and making myself peaceful and staying out of judgment. But it was like serving porridge, you know, just that glump in a bowl. And uh, this uh, teacher was talking to me as a Leo and was saying, you have to recognize your Leo nature. And that's what I wrote about in this uh, blog here. It's called When Talking. Today I could feel the urge to slide down emotionally coming on again. We all have this. It's the COVID response. I don't believe COVID is doing it. I believe we are seeing the ups and downs that we always go through. Our minds do this. It's not coming from outside. But what's happening now is we can see it so clearly. Oh my God, I get depressed or I get nervous or I get anxious. It has to be COVID. No, it's an inside job, baby. This is all coming from inside. You may be triggered, but it's from inside. It reminded me of the coal cellar chute we had under my house when I was young. It was dark down there, and I was admonished in the Ten Commandment chiseled tone my mother could use when laying down the law to never slide into that unseen space. As I woke up, I remembered the visions from my viewing of the various streaming services that I used to numb out before going to sleep. I had jumped from one documentary to another, finding people who had set a goal, worked unflinchingly toward it, and stood a healthy, tough, accomplished monument depiction of what a heroically dedicated senior looks like. I am looking for role models to make sure that I don't let my ego or my past story shut me down, fighting back. <laughs> yes, I thought to myself, you will stop doing just enough, good enough, running along the tracks of the usual habits. Today you will dig your shovel into the coal pile of fuel and throw it into the furnace of ambition. Today will be a flame. After I took my pills and made coffee, my skin blossomed out like an aggressive tea rose with petals of hives. I couldn't tell, but it, it felt so pervasive, I imagined even the back of my eyeballs were swollen. My agenda made out so carefully by my personal assistant self was now out of the question. First, we cope. I took a Benadryl, slurped cups of water and laid down on my left side, which is my horny baby curled position when I am sick. Just as I was about to fall into a drug sleep, my mind chirped at me. You had a nap yesterday. I ignored the nagging. <laughs> when I woke up, I thought it would be a dandy idea if I watched RBG, the documentary on Netflix. All I need, I thought to myself, is more inspiration 
as I lay here under the covers doing nothing. <laughs> Pretty tricky how the ego works, eh? So the urge to dig deep, make something happen, sneak, uh, speak these words that would cast a spell so powerful it could lift a tsunami of carved and curved lace waves to hit the shore had abated. I heard the wind outside as I made my whatever the time it is now meal. The wind yelled at me to come in outside. I let the mind sit there in my skull under my twisting hair and walked barefoot to a garden bed. First from one direction, then from another, the wind confused the branches. Acid yellow pollen rained down onto the lawn. The sky shut gray and close to the earth when day began, but now it was flickering from one picture projection of itself into another. Silver clouds opened up, and the sideways sun took a stab at the earth. There is something ineffable about a strong wind. It is primitive and savage. We have so little common understanding for the causes, the motivations for wind. We do not discuss in our lexicon of weather stories, the first mover of the still air that makes it wild, suddenly in our own backyards. We are so stunned that we cannot dismiss the force with the label of words and are left to stand amazed. And lately, the wind has been exotic, unpredictable, blowing first hot and then cold. But always I feel a call to go stand in it, especially when it is ferocious, multi-pronged, hysterical. I stood in the wind as it changed its mind surrounding me, my hair wrapping across my face, and I thought, I want to be like that. I want to be so passionate that there are no words to describe me. I want to speak to the wind. But first, I have to ask my personal assistant to draw up a new schedule. So, the point of this blog, this mindfulness blog, is how do you get to a place so you allow all parts of yourself to come home, to be who you are? And the desire to shine with the light that is you is something that is very, very strong in us. Some people have a delicate, beautiful, uh, patient, filigree kind of energy and they're trying so hard to make themselves look competitive and interested in status each of us needs to make friends with who we are and be very very uh, delighted with who that is and in that way we are no longer jealous we are no longer comparing ourselves to other people. We are just being who we are. And it's a very calm, peaceful, centered feeling. So I wrote about that in my exploration of uh, how can I be more of a Leo? 
The place that everything starts, as far as I can see, and when I'm coaching uh, the people who, who ask me to hold a space for them and to help them along, is the body. So often what happens in our society is uh, we see the body as an object. We see the body as something we use. Um, a lot of people don't even know what their body is experiencing. So when I went to the retreat with Gabor Mate and the conference with him, I was very pleased to, to hear about the questions. He asks people to ask the question, body, what are you feeling now? And then you get quiet and you listen. And you can even take a breath. This is my methodology I've found. Take a breath, fill your body up, let that breath run around inside your body. And what it'll do is it'll find places of tension, places of anxiety, places where you might be beginning to bring in uh, an illness. And uh, you can connect to that. The next thing that we ask is, why was I triggered? So we'll trace it back. It's like being a detective, you know? Get the monocle and you're looking around and you got all the clues. When did I get triggered? What set me off? And that is a very, very important question because now you're going to trace it back to your childhood. When uh, a woman comes into a meeting and she sashays around and she looks like a movie star and she takes all the attention and everybody adores her, my first response is always a triggered response because mother. She was the model, she walked the runway, she was fantastic. When she was the, the home mother in grade six, she would come in and help everybody with their homework and the boys would say afterwards, oh man, how can that be your mother? She is so hot. So, and I was like, ah! So when I get into that position, I know that it has nothing to do with a woman who just came in the door. This is a trigger left over from my childhood uh, competition that went on between who was the most beautiful of all in, uh, in our little fairy tale. So you ask the question, what is this just like in my childhood? The last thing you do is you take a breath and you let it go. And one of the things I find very, very simple to do is it's not now. So instead of giving validity and strength and power to the uh, trigger that's in your environment at the current time, you can run it through your body and just say, Nope, that's over, that's past, it's not now. And then you let it go. 
once you get to a place where you're showing your body consistent love, what starts to happen, I found out, is your body starts healing. I don't have rheumatoid arthritis any longer, even though I was told that I would be in a wheelchair and I would be deformed. Um, my body trusts me. My body looks at me and goes, mm, she's going to feed me. She's going to make sure I get exercise. She's going to take care of me. So I'm not going to be shooting out a whole bunch of cortisol. And the other part of it is, remember Fraggle Rock? You know, when the dosers would build something and then it just get knocked down. I thought to myself when I saw that when I was a kid, that's just like your body. Like, oh, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to heal this damage. And then the person who owns the body, you, goes right back out and does more damage. Well, that's pretty depressing. <laughs> you know, like at a certain point, doesn't your body just kind of give up on repairing if you're just going to keep messing it up? So uh, things like uh, developing a hardwired habit for eating only those things which show love to your body or doing uh, the amazing, miraculous thing of learning to sleep. Oh, man, are we ever missing that in our society. Mindfulness practice meditation is so good for that. The peace that comes when you lay down and sleep seven, eight, nine hours. Your body goes, oh, isn't this great? I can heal this person because they're not going to wreck it again. <laughs> So that is, that is where I get everyone to start, is to start to look at how they treat their body. And I know for some people, I know this sounds really weird, maybe if you're a dog owner, not so much. But I say to them, if you treated your dog this way, how do you think your dog would feel about you? And it's so funny how the light comes on. You know, they well, what do you mean love my body? I don't understand. Well, you know, you're going for a walk and the dog has to pee and you just jerk on its uh, choke chain and keep going or you put it in the hot car or you don't feed it. Um, so one of the things that can short circuit that uh, blindness to self is to really think about if I were a four-year-old, would I treat a four-year-old this way? If I were a beautiful, lovely dog that I, that I cared for, would I treat a dog this way? Don't think so. So showing yourself love with your body is where you start. The next place is showing yourself love with your comments to yourself. Um, in our society, we are trained up to... Uh, you know, like somebody's gonna hurt us, so we just pick up a hammer of words and smash our own arm. You know, look at that, I, I already did it. I already criticized myself. You can't hurt me, I hurt me. So we have to be very, very careful with how we're talking to ourselves in our heads. When I was reading William James, uh, one of the things that jumped out at me was he asked the question, what is the character of this universe in which we dwell? And what he was saying is each one of us is like in our own story world. We have created a story about the universe, 
about how it works, um, how it takes care of us, or how it punishes us. And he asks people to look at this very, very clearly. What are my belief systems about the universe? I ask my clients to write it out, look at it. William uh, James also talks about how society entrains us into misery habits. And I was like laughing out loud. I was going like, oh my God, we're seeing it right now. There is the ability to go through tough things without making them miserable things. But he said it is exactly what happens in North American society is we have built in so many misery habits. And uh, try this, go out in the world. This is a, one of the things that happened when I was uh, really working on my mindfulness. I was getting to a place where every day I felt loved and supported and uh, that the universe was taking care of me and that there was nothing wrong. I mean, honestly, I could feel no darkness. It was just so peaceful. And this, this comes and goes with me, but it's where I dwell most of the time now. So I go out to a coffee shop. Remember that? Way back in the past, you go out to a coffee shop. And somebody would come up to me and say, how are you? And I would, I would check myself. I'm not just blowing off my mouth. Hmm. Really peaceful. Well, talk about a conversation stopper. People have nothing to say to that. If I tell them my cat has a hairball, my dog has a limp, and my car has a flat tire, we've got conversation. Because they can talk about their horribleness, they can talk about their misery, and now we've got a board game. You know, we're all on the same board, we're sharing our victim energy, blah, blah, blah. So um, it was really, it really struck me that when I would go out and people would ask you, how are you, and i check, and I would go, oh, I'm just so excited. And they said, what happened? Nothing. <laughs> and they would be like, what? <laughs> so try that out because when we victimize ourselves, that's social currency. Now we have a board game and we can all play. What COVID brings us the opportunity to do is it brings us the opportunity to clear out. We can clear out our houses of the junk and the objects that we have bought to make ourselves feel better for status, for the sheer joy of just spending money. We can clear out the clutter that is in our cars, in our sheds, in our attics, in our basements, in our houses, and finally, in our minds. We have so many thoughts in our minds that serve no purpose at all. So mindfulness practice is see the thought and you can watch it go past like a flight of Canadian geese. And you just go, hmm, that's interesting. You see a thought, you let it go. You see a thought, 
you let it go. Living in silence is one of the quickest ways to heal the spirit. That's one of the reasons why monastics will go on a retreat for three months and be away from the world. It's because they realize that we need that to be tough enough to take the world and the drama and the pain that is whirling around outside. So this is, a, this is a wonderful opportunity. I mean, if you were uber rich, you would pay thousands of dollars, get on a plane, go someplace, and sit in a retreat. Hey, we get to do it for free. So embrace that. When you are living in silence, you can find yourself. You can hear your mind. You can begin to understand exactly who you are. And one of the great gifts of having a father who had um, <clears throat> six different personalities in one body that flashed on and off and you never knew when the next one was coming and a mother who was borderline, and I've come to understand this, is from the earliest time in my life, I was emotionally off the grid. Everybody else was connected up to one another and they were following one another and they were taking their cues from one another and they didn't even see it. I have no problem resisting the mass mind because I had this opportunity to watch um, my authority figures, my people who are supposed to show or demonstrate the way to be, uh, put me in a place where I became self-reliant in my perceptions of what is the way to live. I would like to offer anyone a one card free reading. I have 10 decks, you can choose the deck. Uh, just get a hold of me, I'll, I'll draw a card and then I'll let the channel do its work. And uh, I can tell you from my own life experience, what happened is over, who you're becoming is in this moment. We are in now, and I am just going to read this little quote from a prayer. I will end with this. It is my conscious desire to let go of everything and everyone with great love and blessings that have fulfilled its purpose in my journey being free of the old so I can welcome what my soul planned for me to experience in this human plane. As a sovereign free being, I choose to no longer feed the past for it is no longer existing in my present lifetime, fully opening my heart to the new horizons that have not been walked yet by my human self and that will offer me precious new experiences and new encounters. I am forever dwelling 
in this now moment. I am forever grateful for all of the experiences and relationships that have served me to become the empowering and sovereign being that I am now and that I have been already released, forgiven, and appreciated. I am ready to let it all go with great love, joy, and excitement for what is coming in this new stage of my evolutionary path. Now is now. I see a thought, I let it go. I create my life from within. I am in now. And isn't it exciting, all the changes that are coming? Thank you.